This podcast is brought to you by SMA, where capabilities extend beyond the manufacturing of intelligent inverters to the expert care and maintenance of your PV equipment. With services such as grid emulation, commissioning, extended warranty options, and scalable plant-wide O&M, SMA is the partner of choice for your PV projects. Find out more at sma-america.com. For the week of December 4th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Back in Washington, D.C. after a Thanksgiving hiatus, I am Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. You know me as a senior editor with Green Tech Media. Uh, we had a live show a couple weeks ago and a break last week, so the news has piled up on us and we're going to get into it. First, we'll talk about Germany's biggest utility, E.ON, which is divesting completely from fossil fuels. We will look at the rationale behind the decision and ask if the same thing could happen to utilities in America. Then we'll talk about why Google stopped its R&D in renewable energy. Two engineers in charge of Google's canceled program to make renewables cheaper than coal have finally written about their experience. We will look at what they said. And finally, there's a new financier on the block looking to bring the solar-as-a-service model to a broader swath of clean technologies. And it happens to be co-founded by our co-host on this podcast each week, Jigger Shah. We will get some details. And let's turn to my co-hosts, who, uh, like most Americans, have been celebrating lower gas prices, and they're doing it in typical American fashion. Coming to us from her Hummer, in a Walmart parking lot where she's been buying things she doesn't need. It's Catherine Hamilton, a partner with 38 North Solutions. Uh, Catherine, how's your post-Thanksgiving consumerism binge? Oh, thanks. Um, I used Black Friday to buy a diesel gen set. <laughs> to power what? <laughs> oh, my home. Uh, no, I'm kidding. We ended up going, we go to a farm every year out down in Bedford, Bedford Virginia, and it's absolutely wonderful. And unfortunately, uh, my car is much smaller than a Hummer and yet contains many, many more people. Connecting to us from his private jet, where he just finished a three-pound plate of Kobe beef, flown directly to him from Japan this morning, is Jigger Shaw. Uh, Jigger, how are those low gas prices treating you? Any new generators, Hummers, things of that sort? With all the cheap gas prices, my private jet's actually cheaper than first class. <laughs> well, you know, for those who may be new to the podcast, uh, Catherine is actually in Washington. Jigger's in New York. Neither one of them has a Hummer or private jet that we know of. Jigger, although you worked with Richard Branson closely, so, you know, who knows what you got from that? <laughs> no, I, I definitely didn't get a private jet out of that deal. <laughs> well, speaking of money, uh, we're going to kick off the show by talking about a utility that has lost lots of it in the last couple of years, E.ON. German utilities are experiencing the uh, closest thing to a death spiral that we've ever seen. Laws requiring power providers to purchase solar and wind have decimated wholesale electricity prices in the country, making gas, nuclear, and coal plants less valuable and causing E.ON and other utilities to lose billions of dollars. In response, E.ON executives announced this week that they're going to spin off all their fossil fuel and nuclear plants into a separate company in 2015 and make the utility exclusively a distributed energy supplier. Eon's CEO and board chairman described the move this way, quote, We've now come to the conclusion that it will become increasingly difficult for a company with a broad portfolio to be successful and to grow in both the new 
in the conventional energy world. So major development here, but uh, it wasn't all that surprising. Many experts believe this is just like the starting gun of a long, painful race for utilities as they try to get out ahead of distributed generation. And Jigger, I'm assuming that you were expecting this to happen any day now. Yeah, you know, I think that there's so much here that it's almost hard to start. But, you know, I mean, the one thing I would say is that uh, Julie Blunden sent us an email, and uh, she was the former, you know, head of regulatory affairs for SunPower, and, um, you know, worked closely uh, with Herman Scher. And, you know, this is really what Herman Scher was all about in Germany. And I think, you know, she mentioned that Herman Scher is probably toasting this decision from his grave. And, you know, I definitely think he should get a lot of credit for for this. Um, The one thing that struck me the most in the conference call was how much they emphasized that they had to make this break because the people working on the renewable side of the house, which was creating the most amount of growth, didn't want to be part of the company anymore. That the culture of the company was so corrupted by having both sides under one company that to preserve their best talent, they actually had to separate the company. Wait, did they, re- did they really say that? I don't remember yeah. seeing any culture issues there. No, they said it two or three times. They said it in a veiled way, but they basically absolutely said that that on culture, that Eon said that the people running on central generation had one culture, and the people that were prosumer that were working with the customer to give them the access to technology that we all want the, our customers to have had a different culture, and they just couldn't maintain the two. And I think you frankly see this in David Crane's company, NRG, where a lot of his best talent on the central generation side is leaving for Dynergy because they can't stand working for NRG and that culture anymore. That's an interesting parallel, and I do want to talk about if there's an analog here in the United States. Catherine, first, your reaction to this spinoff, which will occur in around 2015, and I think the companies will truly separate at the end of 2015 into 2016. What was your reaction? Yeah, I reached out to Antonella Battalini, who is the executive director of Renewables Grid Initiative in Berlin, to try to get her sense of what it looked like from over there. And she said that the regulators are a little bit nervous because what it's going to do, they're, because they're dividing into two pieces, the piece that is the traditional assets has a, a lot of stranded assets in their nuclear. And there's a huge amount of cost associated with the waste and decommissioning. And there's a very large concern that the taxpayers will have to will have to bear the brunt of that. So I think the regulators are looking at that. In addition, on the other side, you know, there is the side that is going to be delivering um, products to the consumer that the utility doesn't they do have a lot of consumers, but they don't yet have the relationship. There are a lot of competitors out there in on that side of you know that side of the equation that they're going to have. You know, she's just not convinced, and I think the regulators may not be convinced yet that it's that they're going to be able to do it successfully. I think myself that it's kind of cool because what it does is it creates this whole other utility model that's different from what we have in Texas or New York where it's, you know, you have either your wires companies, your retail guys, or you have the generators. Essentially, what they've done is they've created a clean generator because you have your renewables and you have all the efficiency demand side programs that are really virtual power plants. So it changes the whole way we think about where are the generators? Where do they sit on the grid? All right, here's the breakdown of the companies. So the new company, it is not named yet, um, which will spin off from Eon, 
we'll have just over 50,000 megawatts of fossil fuel plants and nuclear plants. It's also got this upstream uh, coal, gas, and oil supply business and the energy trading business, and they're going to keep hydropower with this new company as well. So the the new Eon, which will still be called Eon, the downstream company, has about 15,000 megawatts of renewables, um, just over 30 million sales customers, 33 million sales customers, and they have about 600,000 kilometers of distribution wires. So they are going to focus on those individual uh, customers and corporate customers, on digitizing the distribution grid, and on expanding renewable energy projects. And the big question I have is, what kind of investor is going to want to own the new company? I mean, the the one the one thing that I thought was really interesting as well that that the um, that I learned on the conference call though was that they they really did um, sort of see the growth of their business coming out of this um, uh, remaining business that was called Eon, and they didn't really see growth. Although the CFO sort of tried to use the right words to indicate that um, that the other business wouldn't be no growth. It would just be slower growth. The other thing that I thought I heard them say is they were going to leave all the pension liabilities with the new co, which I thought was really interesting and smart. And they said they're going to do this without basically laying off anybody. Which well, is... you can't in Germany because the, <laughs> the unions are on the board. And so it's like unless you shut down the company, you can't lay anybody off. I was really struck by the comments about this customer-centric philosophy that the new Eon wants to pursue. And, and Thiessen explained, renewables aren't just revolutionizing power generation. This is a direct quote from him. Together with technological innovations, they're changing the role of customers who can already use solar panels to produce a portion of their energy. As energy storage devices become more prevalent, customers will be able to make themselves largely independent of the conventional pa- power and gas supply network. A good indicator of the world we're entering here that is certainly far ahead in Europe and, and in particularly in Germany. And individual customer needs and desires are certainly at the center of that new world. Yeah, it strikes me uh, interesting that they continue, that they keep their Eon old name for this sort of the new business model because it strikes me that they have some reputation management to do based on what's been happening there and that they have a little bit of work to do to get the trust back of their consumers and really have them buy into the fact that they're completely changing their business model. What about here in the U.S.? Do any of you see this kind of thing happening to major uh, diversified utilities here eventually? I mean, it's what's happening in New York, except that they don't have to break them up. <laughs> they already just are the you know the distribution side. Yeah, I mean, in the U.S., for deregulated markets, they've already forced most of the um, the utilities to sell off their generation, and so I mean, they've already split the company in two. I think that you know the 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 remaining utility companies though are still fiercely protecting their their behind. I mean, when you look at the U.S. market with uh, Nextera buying HEI, which I thought was a fascinating. Uh, decision. It's going to be really interesting to see who influences who, right? I mean, you know, Nextera has done an extraordinary job making energy efficiency and renewable energy practically illegal in their territory in Florida. Um, with Hawaii going crazy with renewables, it'll see. It'll be interesting to see if Nextera learns from Hawaii and does more renewables in Florida, or whether you know they're going to impose the same sort of sanctions on the Hawaii market that they're got their customers under in Florida. Yeah, what an interesting development. So if if people are just catching up to this. Yesterday, 
on Wednesday afternoon, Nextera announced that it was going to acquire Hawaiian, the Hawaiian utility, Hawaiian Electric uh, Industries, which owns HECO, uh, for $4.5 billion. So Nextera obviously has a big nuclear fleet. It has, I think, eight nuclear reactors. It's got a lot of wind. It's got 17% of U.S. wind capacity installed, and it owns about 14% of U.S. utility-scale solar. Um, you know, yeah, but I, I, you know what? They're taking. They have a huge play in energy storage. I think this is like the perfect match for them. Their their unregulated part of their business is that's what they've been doing. They've been doing all this renewable development and energy storage, and I think that those skills that they've honed are going to be perfect to help on in Hawaii. Right, well, but Catherine, the problem with that is, where have those skills been in Florida Power and Lights territory? Well, they haven't. I think they've been seen every elsewhere, not in Florida. Yeah, but, Power but, and Light. but why would you think they would bring them in Hawaii? I mean, Hawaii is a regulated utility. Why wouldn't you think that they'd want to run Hawaii exactly like they've run Florida Power and Light? I just think it's a totally different situation. I don't think they're going to make it like but, Florida. But, they've already got the utility piece. They don't need to worry about the utility piece. They need to worry about how to integrate renewables and storage. And let's remember that there's a completely different regulatory picture in Hawaii than in Florida. Yeah. In Florida, the, the regulators are saying, yeah, we'll give the utilities whatever they want. They're stripping uh, every possible program to support renewables and efficiency. And in Hawaii, they came back to the Hawaiian utilities and said, get your act together. You need to come out with a real plan that's going to help you deal with the future grid. Totally different set of philosophies, and I think that will guide their business decisions. Well, look, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing that I think that Nextera has skills and that Nextera could be relevant to solving this problem in Hawaii. But I think to suggest for a moment that Nextera has a proven track record of running regulated utilities in a way that's good for our constituents is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I wasn't saying they were good at running regulated utilities. I was just saying they were going to bring some skills in developing, in integrating renewables and storage on grids. The one other thing I would say about the Nextera thing, and I know we sort of moved off of Eon here a little bit, is that I'm still predicting that we'll have six major utilities in the United States in about six or seven years. You'll have Mid-American, Exelon, Nextera, and then a few other major utilities, and all the other investor-owned utilities will be owned by those six. All right, so our listeners keeping tally, that's another one of Jigger's predictions. So we've got <laughs> Apple buying Tesla, and we've got six investor-owned utilities in the, in the country getting well, whittled down to, from a couple hundred. Well, I mean, just to put a finer point on that, I think it'll be, it'll be six utility companies with a market cap that's larger than a billion dollars left in 2022. Well, going back uh, over to Europe, I mean, the, the situation is uh, – extraordinarily dire for a lot of these utilities. And of course, RWE announced last year that it wants to start transitioning its business to become more prosumer oriented. Uh, It's going to mothball like three gigawatts of fossil fuel plants in the coming years. Uh, And it's last year, it saw losses of um, a couple billion dollars. So five and a half. Was it five and a half? I thought that was Eon for this year. Oh yeah, you're right. That's the end for this year. But you know the thing about the thing about Europe that I think is important to note is that one. So when Herman Scher was doing a lot of this stuff, Eon basically said, "You know what? Screw you, Herman Scher. We're going to build very state of the art coal plants that have all these like bells and whistles that burn coal really efficiently. And those coal plants are running at half capacity right now because they just couldn't see the future. And so they sort of deserve what's coming to them. But the on the positive side. What's interesting about the Europeans, I find, is they're actually not as 
um, interested in change on the consumer side. So I think now that Eon, with its brand, is going to the marketplace and saying, we actually want to provide these services to you, I think you're going to see a shocking number of consumers actually prefer Eon to provide these services to them than some of the, you know, traditional startup companies that we've been working with for the past 15 years. I think a lot of those companies are going to have a hard time competing with the Yen's brand. Well, and that's a really interesting parallel with the U.S. as well. So we've talked about the difference between NRG and Dynagy, the two big independent power providers that have, of course, a lot of wholesale assets and are big on the retail level. And Dynagy has basically ignored any innovation on the retail level, while NRG has put a major focus into solar, home energy management, energy efficiency, and they think that that's the future of their business. So in this consumer-centric world, where Eon has to actually spin off its assets and create a new company based on consumer preferences, does that materially impact Dynagy's decisions in any way? What does that say about the future of Dynagy's decisions, uh, which they defend and they think they're, they're right about? Well, I think if you look at NRG, let's just try to figure out what percentage of NRG's total profits are going to come from all this newfangled stuff that that David Crane's talking about, right? And my sense is for the next five years, it's going to be less than 25%. So, I mean, it's not surprising to me if you're the CFO of NRG, then, you know, you're really still running the same business that Dynergy's running. And, you know, the thing that's interesting is when NRG announced their decarbonization efforts, they basically put it on a 2050 track, which I thought was embarrassing. I mean, why would you say that even put out a press release saying we're going to decarbonize ourselves by 2050? If they're not decarbonizing themselves by 2025, they might as well not even talk about it. But it sounds like they are taking some big bets on the demand side. So they just won through SoCalEd's um, local capacity requirement, 178 megawatts of demand management, energy efficiency, storage. So, I mean, they are they are in that market. Um, you know, they were also in the gas market there too. But it strikes me that NRG's assets are generally in places where the rates are higher, they're getting a better return for their investment than Dynagy, which is like some of those Midwestern plants. It's just they're not paying for themselves. All right. So the Eon development, is this a, a one-off, a fluke, or is this the beginning of a major transition for the world's major utilities? Jigger? Oh, I think this is um, you know a major transition. I think every utility is going to have to basically put their personnel that is wedded to the past in one company and their personnel that's wedded to the future in another company. Catherine? Yeah, I don't know if, if I would see it that starkly, but yes, I think things are going to shift a lot over the next decade and there will be a bunch of different business models. I think uh, it'll be really interesting to see if this one works. All right, let's get a word in about uh, our sponsor. German company, in fact, SMA. You've got a solar plant, maybe a whole bunch of them. And to ensure a maximum return, you want to watch them very carefully. With SMA's state-of-the-art solar monitoring center, experts help you out by utilizing advanced real-time monitoring capabilities to analyze performance, detect potential issues, and resolve matters remotely. If needed, they can dispatch field service engineers to get your system back on track quickly. Maximize performance and minimize downtime with SMA Service, where your success is their top priority. Find out more at sma-america.com. In 2007, Google shook up the clean energy world by announcing an initiative to make renewables cheaper than coal. It put millions of dollars into new concentrating solar technologies, 
geothermal drilling techniques, and wind tower designs. Well, guess what? Today, many renewable energy technologies are indeed cheaper than coal on a levelized cost of energy basis. It wasn't Google that did it. It was a natural evolution of technology led by many actors in the business. But before we got here, Google quit its initiative prematurely in 2011. Engineers weren't getting the results they expected, and the company decided to focus on procuring commercially available renewables to power their operations, investing more than $1 billion over the years. End of story, right? Google saw that conventional renewables were already there and decided to spend money differently. Well, not according to two lead engineers who worked on the project. In a piece late last month in IEEE's Spectrum magazine, Ross Koningstein and David Fork uh, said just the opposite. Google stopped because conventional renewables weren't nearly enough to deal with climate change. Quote, trying to combat climate change exclusively with today's renewable energy technology simply won't work. We need a fundamentally different approach, they said, unquote. Uh, The piece is quite thought-provoking, and I encourage people to read it. We are going to link to it in our uh, podcast show notes. But it's also very incomplete. Uh, Koningstein and Fork don't really add much detail on what kind of groundbreaking technologies we'd need in place, nor do they explain if Google is interested in pursuing these bigger innovations, whatever they are, that they tout. So I want to dissect this. Uh, Catherine, over to you first. What was your initial reaction when you read the piece in the magazine? Yeah, it was it was really interesting because it seemed like what they were doing was they're not really shifting the what they're investing in. I mean, they're still investing in renewables. They're still investing in disruptive technologies like with Nest. Um, but what they're trying to do is instead create a different model where, you know, they're they're going to engage seventy percent in kind of tried and true core clean energy. 20% in cutting edge technology and 10% in real disruption, kind of like a Bell Labs model where you're thinking where you're always given space and time and resources to do things that are really outside the box. Because what it sounds like they want to do is, and this is a quote from their article, as they say, what's needed are zero carbon energy sources so cheap that the operators of power plants and industrial facilities have an economic rationale for switching over in the next 40 years. So they really want to find you know ways to whatever, get carbon dioxide from the air and grab it and do something with it. And so trying to come up with really different outside the box things, I don't think that this is completely a change of mentality for Google. I think it's just a pivot. I'm trying to figure out what technologies are they talking about? They mention advanced nuclear. They kind of mention CCS in passing. But, like, they've had years to think about this stuff, and they never came up with any good ideas on what they see as the next step if we do need these groundbreaking technologies. Jigger, what was your reaction to the piece when you read it? Well, whenever I hear Google, I think I'm no longer going to listen to them. Why's that? Because I've always found them to be ridiculous. I mean, name one thing that they've done that's interesting in this space. I mean, they basically said, oh, we're going to do the power meter, but we're not going to fund it. We're just going to beta test people. Then they're going to be like, oh, RE net less than C, but we're not going to actually spend any money on regulatory affairs to tell people in the states that we actually have data centers in that they need to um, do more renewable energy and efficiency than build more coal plants, right? I mean, their whole business model is based on them pontificating and sort of beta testing on us and doing all sorts of BS. When you talk to their CFO, their CFO is like, oh, we're going to do super low-risk solar projects. I'm actually shocked that they did Ivanpah. Um, but otherwise, I mean, they do really low-risk stuff. Um, you know, separately, when Arun Majumdar was there, he was doing some really interesting stuff on, like, you know, like 
inverters in the future, et cetera. But they never actually rolled that out in the marketplace. And so they finally gave up on themselves and these two people and decided to buy Nest because Nest was a real company with a real product. And Nest is actually doing real stuff and exactly the stuff that these guys couldn't figure out, which is you have to have demand dexterity that equals supply dexterity. This notion that renewable energy is going to solve the world's problems Absolutely right. It's not going to solve the world's problems. But if you combine that with the ability to fluctuate people's demand um, to be able to like flow in sync with the fluctuations in supply from variable renewables, then you've got a winning formula. And that's exactly what Nest is bringing to the table. <laughs> yeah, so I got, that's a I got, smart move on Google's part. That, right. That but these that two people in- – yeah, but these two people didn't have any like business even talking. I don't know why they even opened their big-ass mouths. <laughs> I got the sense that a lot of people were feeling that same way. And that brings me to a couple of contradictions in the piece that I think a lot of people pointed out and that I immediately grabbed onto as I was reading what they were saying. And and firstly, like, you know, they said we need these dramatic breakthroughs in technologies and these big, bold R&D initiatives. But as you mentioned, Jigger, Google itself is taking this more conservative approach. They've got, you know, the driverless car initiative. They're investing in car sharing companies like Uber they bought Nest. They're looking at home energy management. Their own previous power meter failed. Um, you know, those are solutions to lowering emissions, certainly, but they're not anywhere close to the scope of what the engineers are talking about in this piece. And um, there, is, I mean, there is this one thing that's consistent with Google's strategy. You know, they do talk about the the, the power electronics to manage the DG on the grid. They've got that um, little box challenge, which they, which they rolled out in the spring and said that they would award a million dollars to a company that can create an inverter the size of a laptop. A million dollars certainly isn't much, though. Uh, and, you know, they want to create micro low-cost microgrids. Um, and then they say they want to enable advances that we haven't even thought of yet, whatever those are. Right, but, all, but other than that, like, I, but, but other than that, I see these, this, this pretty major disconnect between the lessons learned at Google and their actual investments. I mean, clearly the company isn't – I don't think the company's set up to take those huge risks on groundbreaking energy technologies. They're just not. But their engineers kind of fa- – I think they fail to explain the shift adequately. No, look, I, I was at the Corporate Eco Forum launch event in 2007, I think it was, when Eric Schmidt went on stage and said, we have a plan now to get to 100% renewable energy by 2030. Remember that? And they actually put it on their on their website. And then suddenly, poof, like, where did it go? Where did that like 100% renewable energy by 2030 plan go? Did they update it? No, because they don't care. Google just basically says, oh, yeah, we're going to come in, disrupt your business, and then we're going to leave because we're bored and we're moving on to something more interesting. But they're still taking investments. This is the thing. I think that's more of a messaging issue and them getting out a little bit ahead. So, I mean, it was not a dumb move to stop funding and investing in their meter, which was clearly not going to work. And instead, let's shift to something that will, like Nest. So it's not that it was a bad thing to shift. It was that I think that the way they roll things out maybe is – annoys people because it does seem like a bit of a moving target. Right, but it annoys me that we're even talking about this. <laughs> I mean, like, look, I mean, the, it, Nest is a real company. That's great. Let's talk about Nest. 
But these two engineers worked for an organization in Google.org that simply didn't do anything for like five years. You're right? wrong. You're just wrong. This is one of the most powerful tech companies in the world that tried to take a shot at innovating here. And it might have been the wrong move, but they moved the needle on how people were talking about this stuff. They attempted to learn from it. They've made solid investments in deployment and have also moved the conversation on how corporations actually invest in projects, not just buying wrecks to say that their business is sustainable. Oh, come on. Yes. Like, I mean, Google, look, Google decided that, you know, based on Sun Edison and other people who went to them and asked them for money, that instead of actually buying layered CDs, which is what Microsoft did with their money, that it would be better to invest in low-risk renewable energy projects because you get a far higher rate of return and a far better tax benefit for them. And that's fantastic. But we would have won that regardless of whether Google.org did anything in renewables. Google.org did not convince their CFO to make these investments. Google.org, on the other side, was, you know, after their IPO, they said, we want to put 1% of our total net worth into this mission to do good in the world. And if you read their like opening letter, they said this particular Google.org group might actually do more good in the world than the rest of Google over time. Right. And then it was nothing but a shit show. Right. You had Larry Brilliant running it then this other person running it then the other person running it. Dan Riker left as fast as he could to like, you know, to Stanford University. And, you know, they basically have have just jerked us around. I don't think they've been useful at all on the Google.org side in the renewable conversation. Google, the company that's the tax equity investor, has done great things. So has Wells Fargo, the tax equity investor, and MetLife, and MassMutual, and all sorts of other great people. But Google.org, who attempted to try to tell us how to decarbonize the world to be able to, like, save us from climate change, didn't do one thing that was interesting or unique. So is it a matter of leadership, Jigger, or, like, what would you have them do differently? I think that what Google should have done was said, what are we good at? And I think what they're good at is organizing the world's information. So then they should have said, what can we organize in the world to actually make, you know, decarbonizing the world more efficient? Well, maybe we can help measure things better. Maybe we can help bring the utilities grid um, operation software into the 21st century by helping to manage demand as fluidly as we manage supply. Maybe we can help with the, you know, implementation of, of FERC Order 745 or 755. But instead, they said, Oh, like, you know, let me get some engineers to work four hours a week on some interesting project that makes something interesting for them. And then then they were like, oh, maybe we should float a press release about it. And so that all these people waste hundreds and hundreds of hours talking about it. And then they never really backed it up. They're like, oh, we don't actually plan to launch it. We just were kidding. I think we were talking past each other a little bit there on the difference between Google.org and Google itself, uh, the tax equity investor. Well, let's get beyond Google. And I just wanted to mention something that kind of annoyed me about the findings. And that was like, we've known for a long time that to get to 80% reductions in emissions, like the UN says we need to in order to stabilize temperatures, it's going to take a hell of a lot more than transforming renewable electricity, which you mentioned, Jigger. I mean, that's not a new revelation at all. And in, in, in 2011, Google put out a paper using McKinsey models looking at the emissions impacts of clean energy innovation. And they basically found what was said in this recent piece, that conventional renewables aren't enough. But they admitted that they had a really limited group of technologies that they were modeling. And so, actually, let me me quote the paper here. Quote, 
We did not model innovations in many promising sectors, including low-carbon fuels, internal combustion engines, advanced building materials, advanced building energy management, or agricultural practices. Since the subset of technologies we modeled achieved a 49% emissions reduction, it is possible that a more comprehensive mix of innovations could achieve 80% reductions. Uh, so, like, taking six or seven technologies and saying that renewables aren't going to solve the problem is is not wrong. It's just really incomplete. And, like, none of us sit here and claim that renewables and nuclear are going to get us to the emissions reductions that, you know, scientists are saying that we need. But, um, and I, I think the conclusion they're coming to isn't all that new or surprising. I will say, though, that... I think this should make us think harder about the complexity of the low carbon transition, and this is, where I, this is where I think the piece does have value. You know, wind and solar and other renewables, to a lesser degree, are at the center of attention because of their dramatic cost changes, particularly in the electricity sector. But they're a piece of that entire emissions picture, and I think that this is a strong reminder of that for many folks who are not don't have their heads in the business. I think it should be taken seriously because of that. Yeah, look, I think that. Solar and wind are not going to solve the climate change problem. It's solar and wind and hundreds of other technologies that have been outlined by the McKinsey Resource Efficiency Report and the Resource Revolution book that Stefan Heck and Matt Rogers just came out with and the IEA's findings and the 27,000 pages of documents that they have on their website to actually back up those findings. And there's lots of really good data out there. I mean, there is an absolute interesting conversation about whether we have the technologies available today to meet the 2020 emission reductions goals and then the 2030 emissions reductions goals. I think there's a lot of good analysis there, but there's a lot of people who genuinely disagree. James Hansen basically says, screw everything, we should just do everything by nuclear. And so there's certainly real conversations to be had there, and I'm happy to engage in those conversations. But I just think the notion that this piece on Google was useful in any way is wrong. I think that th there needs to be a sensible conversation about how we decarbonize the planet. And I think there's thousands of pages that have been written by other really respected groups that we should leverage to have the conversation. Here, let me just uh, Google those papers. Uh, no, just kidding. All right, let's move on to the third topic. We all know this term by now, solar as a service. It stemmed from an idea hatched by Jigger Shah when founding Sun Edison more than a decade ago. The power purchase agreement spawned a boom in U.S. solar that has made it into an arguably mainstream technology. So how do we uh, do the same thing for other commercially ready technologies that aren't at the same level of maturity as solar? Get us those technologies that we're talking about here that we need to lower emissions. Uh, that's what generate capital. This new financing company is looking to do. And uh, guess what? It was started by Jigger and three other energy executives, Scott Jacobs, Matan Friedman, and Jason Fish. And uh, so I just wanted to be known to our listeners that Jigger did not request that we talk about the company on the show. I chose to do it because I, I think it's news here. And this is an area that Jigger knows well. Um, so what, what do you guys do? Explain how infrastructure as a service works. Walk us through how you're going to fund projects, structure contracts, and actually make money off of these more underserved technologies. When you think about the solar revolution and where we are today, I think that there is a very basic concept underlying where solar is today that people just take for granted, right? Which is that, that no money down solar really is 
sexier and easier to get customers to adopt than them paying cash up front. And that there are banks actually willing to finance that no money down contract. And that to some degree, the developers and the customers and the banks have engaged in a dance that all three of them actually have learned the steps for. And they're actually working in harmony to be able to put lots of money out the door. But that's not true for technologies that have been around for decades. I mean, think about solar hot water. 40% of Americans are not connected to natural gas for their hot water usage. They're either on electricity or fuel oil or propane. Solar hot water is cheaper than those fuels, than than the fuels that they're using. But there's no no money down contract for solar hot water, even though Jimmy Carter put solar hot water panels on the White House in the 70s. Yeah, but you've tried this for commercial solar hot water, right? With Skyline Innovation, formerly Skyline Innovations, now Nextility. Yeah, and it's working well. It's working well. So like... I mean, we haven't heard the solar hot water market is basically stagnant. So we haven't seen a dramatic push even with solar hot water as a service. You've tried this with sustainable agriculture. I mean, I haven't heard a lot of traction there. How does it match up with the pace that we saw in solar PV? Well, I think when you think about where we started in 03, it wasn't really until 2007 that you actually noticed the pace of solar PV going upwards in the U.S. So it sort of took four years of of getting this stuff done. And in the meantime, we had done an entire $60 million of funding with Goldman Sachs during that four years, right? So, so just because it's not commonplace knowledge in the marketplace that solar hot water is now getting financed as a service or battery storage is now getting financed as a service or, you know... Um, ice storage, uh, you know, chilled water systems are getting financed as a service now. doesn't mean that it's not on track to really getting to this harmony point. Um, I just think that it requires, you know, standards and it requires standardized documentation. It requires educating the installers on what the rules of the road are so they're actually originating deals that we can finance so they're not wasting their time and wasting their salespeople's time. Um, and all of that coordination takes a lot of effort. And I think it starts with having a capital provider. Like if you think about where Sun Edison is today, it wouldn't have been there if Goldman Sachs hadn't put up the $60 million fund. And that's basically what we're doing for the Sun Edisons of the future. So are you focusing, Jigger, uh, first in the U.S. or are you looking at developing countries? We're, we're, we're free to do developing countries, but right now we're only focused on the U.S., what kind of projects are you going to be supporting? Anything that looks like you know resource efficiency solutions. So anything that costs more upfront but has operating cost savings over time, like anaerobic digesters or um, even vehicle efficiency technologies. Like I was talking to an electric bus manufacturer the other day who said they'd love for us to be able to sell their electric buses on a cost-per-mile basis uh, to fleets or bus fleets. All right. Well, it took three years for the solar as a service to really take off. In 2017, we'll check back in. We'll see if infrastructure as a service is as big uh, a phrase. Let's tell our listeners something they don't know now and finish off the show. Catherine Hamilton, you get to go first this week. What do you got? Yeah, I feel like that Monty Python sketch where the guy's like, it's not dead yet. Um, Let me guess. You're going to talk about the production tax credit. (laughs) You got that right. (laughs) So So it's not dead yet. Um, In fact, uh, a bill passed in the House of Representatives last night um, 
378 to 46. It had a lot of Democrats on it. Just a few Democrats uh, decided not to support it, which really just is a one-year extension. And by one-year extension, it means it only goes to the end of this year. So it bat, you know, it goes retroactive to the beginning of 2014 and ends at the end of 2014. And so for the 50 tax credits that were in this package, um, a lot of them, that was really, really necessary because these are people who get you know, earned income tax credit, you know, it's all these tax credits that they have to, they have to be able to file for from this year's taxes. Um, For the production tax credit, it's really tough. I mean, it's better than nothing, uh, because there are a few deals that can close out this year, but it's definitely not going to put new jobs, new wind terms in the ground next year. It's going to be pretty rough. And my sense is that the Senate is going to go along with it. I don't think there's much of a negotiating position right now. I mean, it will basically help projects that are almost in the ground, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it'll push them over the line. So they're, you know, it's going to help some. It's better than not having it at all. But uh, it's just going to be one year. And it, I don't know what it's going to look like for next year. It's it's going to be a lot of work to get something you know, kind of resurrected in the new Congress. Uh, the 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 shiny object, the nice like uh, silver lining, was that another um, piece of legislation passed called the ABLE Act, which we expect to sail through the Senate as well, which allows people with disabilities to access tax free savings accounts the way you would have savings accounts for your kids to go to college. Um, a lot of people have kids with disabilities who may or may not be able to go to college, and this would enable them to have the same savings plan set up. So that was kind of a nice thing, and that was completely bipartisan. And you get personal connection with that? I do. We have two kids with disabilities and know a lot of the members of Congress who have kids with disabilities, too. Jigger, what is yours? So so I've been following um, the India solar work, and um, there's just been a lot of chatter this last week. And so the Indian government is basically you know, talking about doing 100 gigawatts of solar in uh, India by 2022. And that would put it at roughly... 10.5% of all the kilowatt hours, not the capacity, but the actual electrons would come from solar by 2022, which would be a higher penetration than you currently have in the US or China, which I thought was interesting. And separately, like SoftBank announced that they were going to finance 10 gigawatts of solar in India. All right. Well, uh, as everyone knows, or most people know, especially Catherine, the uh, comment period for the EPA carbon rule closed down this week. Over a million and a half people contributed their thoughts. Some were violently opposed. Some were excitedly supportive. And uh, my colleague Julia Piper was going through some of the comments as she was writing a story this week and found some very colorful responses, some uh, conspiracy theories, angry inventors, hmm. off-centered folks, people who just really enjoy swearing. And she, uh, after seeing what she came up with, I couldn't help in but help but join in the digging and searching through the documents. And we started publishing the results on Twitter under the hashtag EPA comments. And soon after, a lot of people, a lot of journalists, especially who were digging through the comments, started adding more. And the results are pre- pretty humorous if you're into that kind of dark humor. Some may just be depressed, but uh, you can go to EPA comments on Twitter. Hashtag EPA comments for a list of some of the more colorful and offensive comments on EPA's carbon rule. Oh, man, I hope they weren't from any of the three that I had to file. Did, did you just swear and talk about inventions that, you, that nobody was <laughs> That's noticing? Right. That's right. Why the hell won't anybody do energy storage? <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there were more colorful versions of that. So go check them out. They are pretty funny. That is the end of the show for this week. For more background on the topics we discussed, go on over to greentechmedia.com slash podcast. 
You can check out back episodes while you're there. And uh, be sure to send a link to your friends, family, and colleagues. It's the holiday season. What better gift can you give the clean energy enthusiast in your life than a free subscription to this show? Uh, Very little hassle for you and a lot of reward for them. And if you're feeling even more generous, give your solar developer colleague a subscription to SMA's Operations and Maintenance Service. It's a lot more expensive, but I'm sure they'll appreciate it. The show is, of course, sponsored by SMA, so, so thanks a lot to them. Um, Just a reminder that we have a live show coming up next Tuesday, December 9th in San Diego at our Solar Market Insight Conference. That should be a lot of fun. We are going to have CPUC Commissioner Michael Picker, who is a very fun guy to talk to, and uh, uh, Matteo Germillo, who is the head of the powertrain business and stationary storage business at Tesla. And he's going to walk us through the company's strategy, and I think he's going to have some valuable insight there into... uh, you know, how much storage they think they can develop for stationary uh, applications. Should be fun. Have a great weekend, Catherine and Jigger. Um, safe travels. We'll talk to you later, Catherine. Have a good yeah. good weekend. You too. See you in San Diego. Jigger, take care, and uh, we'll see you there as well. Yeah, and uh, I just want to give a shout-out to my friends in New York about, uh, you know, we had a tough uh, week in race relations, and I uh, hope everyone stays safe out there. Yes. Absolutely. If you want a more depressing, sad, sobering look at Twitter, follow the I Can't Breathe hashtag. It has been uh, on my tweet deck for the last day or so, and just watching the reactions come in over the, the lack of a grand jury indictment um, in New York there, and just over Eric Gardner's death. It's been very sad, and uh, I hope people pay attention to it. But on a lighter note... We are the Energy Gang. It is Catherine Hamilton, Jigger Shaw, and I am Stephen Lacey. And we will catch you next week. We are, of course, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. See you in San Diego next week. Mm-hmm.